Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There's catastrophes everywhere. A turducken of crises. The thing about turduckens is... To fit the chicken inside the duck, inside the turkey, you have to stuff it up the ass of the previous piece of poultry. Yes, that's, you know what? That's the thing they never tell you about the turducken. A crisis, up the ass of a crisis, up the ass of a crisis. It's all the ass play involved. Okay, folks, you are listening to Labor, the social science on work, women, and motherhood. My name is Elise Hugh. I am a person with some kids. I'm Amy Westervelt. I'm a lady who smells like pee and hasn't showered in three days. (laughs) Parents today are grappling with multiple catastrophes at once. That even feels like an understatement. It's just like nothing but catastrophes right now. Even before the immediate concerns posed by a global pandemic, we were grappling with raising kids in the face of catastrophic climate change. And racial inequality. And economic instability. (laughs) It's just a scary time in the world on every front. I've been really worried about raising kids in the climate crisis for a while. I've been like having serious dread whenever my kid asked me like, what's college like? And then Mm. the pandemic layered a bunch of new worries right on top of that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, more and more folks are asking themselves whether they should even have kids during this climate crisis, like whether it's ethical. Um, But, you know, we've already made those decisions and decided yes. (laughs) And our producer and my co-founder, Rachel Swaby, is actually having a baby amidst all of this. She's having a 2020 baby. Hello. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Oh, man. I'm I'm sorry. I can't help but like but like have pity in my voice when I'm like, how are you feeling, Rachel? (laughs) I feel like that's the correct response. (laughs) Yeah. So what does it feel like to have a baby right now? What's, what's on your mind? Yeah. So I should be, I mean, by the time this comes out, I will have already had the baby, but right now I'm, I'm like a week out and, um, you know, the way that I thought this was going to go in the beginning in November when I found out I was pregnant, at that point I was thinking, mm-hmm. okay, I had been trying to work towards this for a year. It was a really hard process. The hard part is over. It's going to be easy from here on out. <laughs> and like every single plan that I had is now completely out the window. I thought my mom was going to be here to take care of my almost four-year-old. She's 
definitely not going to be here. Aww. We're now thinking about moving. I don't have childcare. It's just, I, it, it's, it's a lot. It's been a lot. Yeah. How are you coping? So I'm thinking about like little baby fingers and the smell of it and all of that stuff. But a- as soon as I kind of zoom out further than that, I start to panic. So it's really like just trying to hold on to the details that I will enjoy and I can control, which are very few at this point, actually. Yeah. One day at a time, I think. Yeah. Not just for expectant parents, but for all of us, right? Like all we can do is put one foot in front of the other and do our best. Yeah. It is kind of like this thing that um, sort of forces us all to (laughs) be really present, not in a woo-woo way, but just in a like, got to survive today. There's no other choice. Yeah. It's sort of a practical matter, right? It's a practical matter. Yeah. So one thing that's given me something to cling on to recently is a conversation I had a few months ago with Kate Marble. Kate is a NASA climate scientist and a mom and a friend of mine who's always had a much more optimistic take on mothering in the face of the climate crisis. Here's a bit from that conversation. I do have no patience whatsoever for inevitability and apocalyptic narratives, because I know that if we put a bunch of carbon dioxide in the air, it will get hotter and bad things will happen. But I don't know anything about the possible trajectories that human society could take. There are so many different ways in which that society could evolve. I think focusing on creating the kind of society that I want to live in is is really important right now. Some of the more optimistic people on the future of the world are climate people, who you would think would be... That's so counterintuitive. I know. I like this idea that that she talks about, you know, that really we have to focus on building the sort of society that we want to live in and not freaking out about the world ending. (laughs) Yeah, we are the ancestors. Assuming there is a future, we have to remember that we are the ancestors. Exactly. Yeah. So today we're going to look at a systemic challenge like climate and what it tells us about solving systemic issues around parenting and family life, especially amidst this clusterfuck of 2020, this public health crisis and social crisis and economic crisis in one. That's right. So to make sense of all that, I spoke with Dr. Beth Sowen. She's the co-founder and co-director of Climate Interactive, which is a nonprofit energy and environment think tank that grew out of MIT. And Amy, I know you've known her work for a while. Yeah, but what made us want to talk to her, actually, was that she made this tweet that had nothing to do with climate, really. And she said, I don't know that I trust a country that failed to address school shootings to figure out how to operate schools safely in a pandemic. And Ouch, we were just like, that's too real. Too <laughs> I real. I know. No. But Dr. Sowen has spent her whole career looking for solutions to multiple problems at once, as you described, and... Boy, do we need that now for our turducken. So, Amy, you piloted this conversation because I kid you not, I had to go pick up kids at the last minute (laughs) because of my latest family emergency or another. So I missed this interview. So y'all, Amy in conversation with Dr. Beth Sowen. That's after a quick break. Hi, Beth. Welcome to Labor. Hey, thanks for having me, Amy. 
So I wanted to start with just sort of getting a sense of your setup right now. So where do you live? How old are your kids? What is what does your situation kind of look like these days? Yeah. So I live in a small town in Vermont called Heartland, Vermont. And then within Heartland, I live in an interesting place, which is called Cobb Hill Co-Housing, which is an eco-village that my family and a bunch of other families started, believe it or not, 20 years ago. When our children were babies, we and these other families bought two old dairy farms that were adjoining. So together they have 280 acres. And then we built what were kind of state-of-the-art green buildings back in the late 1990s that are all clustered on about two out of all those acres. And we put the rest under conservation easement and different subsets of my neighbors and, and us, you know, grow food, manage the forest. There's a dairy and a um, vegetable CSA. So that's where my kids grew up. And from there, I'm the co-director of a nonprofit called Climate Interactive. And we build computer simulations about climate change and options for everyone from national governments, local governments, and citizens to respond. Okay. So I know your kids are grown now, but they were young when you first started working on climate, right? Yeah. Yep. Very much um, young to the point of um, being embryonic. I realized that the work I was doing out outside of the lab was actually really important. And that was volunteering with organizations that were working on peace and nuclear disarmament and on ecological sustainability. These big, big topics that, you know, a citizen movement was trying to change. I reconnected with a professor I'd known as an undergrad, and her name was Danella Meadows. She's no longer alive, but she was one of the group of people who wrote the, the study for the Club of Rome called The Limits to Growth back in the late 1970s. Oh, yeah. Interesting. So she was, she founded a research institute called the Sustainability Institute, and she hired a bunch of young, just out of grad school people to, to help staff that institute. And um, my husband and I were actually both uh, hired by her to share one position. And at that point, our oldest, older daughter was about six months old, but it was the pull to, to do this work that just felt so important to us. And I think having, mm-hmm. having an infant and kind of having that expansion of our time horizon of like, what were the years that mattered? They suddenly stretched out a lot more than our own lives. So even though in some ways it, it looks, looks back and it looks kind of crazy making that big of a insecure leap, I think there was a bigger a bigger thing driving us. I found this TED talk that you gave in Sun Valley, I think, in either 2017, 2018 kind of timeline. And you talked about kind of shifting your thinking over time. We're going to hear a little bit from that TED talk right now. When I started working on climate change, I thought the most important thing to do was convince people to sacrifice today in order to protect the climate for the future. Today, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. What we need to do is help people understand all the actions that simultaneously protect the climate for the future and solve pressing problems for people today. Can you, can you kind of talk us through that shift in your thinking and, and what catalyzed it? That shift came, I guess, if I did the math, maybe like 12 or 15 years or something into my work on sustainability. So you know, we talked about graduate students shifting into this field of systems and sustainability and analysis. Um, and 
working really hard at a time when climate change was not on the tip of everyone's tongue, you know, the way that it is now. Um, the consequences were a lot further out. Actually, at the same time, Al Gore was going around the world with his slideshow. I had a little slideshow of my own and I would go to like church basements and public libraries and I would educate people about there's this, you know, there's this imbalance in the atmosphere and here's what it could lead to. And invariably I made people cry. (laughs) Um, They were hearing about it kind of, you know, for the first time. That's a whole other journey, actually, figuring out how to engage in a way that was more productive. But from that church basement library work, another strand of work at about the same time led us to really a big venue, which was the UN Climate Talks in Copenhagen um, in 2009. And our uh, tiny team, we were just like four people at that point, had had a breakthrough with the kind of computer modeling we were doing where we could add up the pledges that different countries um, were making to the UN about how they were going to reduce their emissions. And this was mind-boggling to me when I first found it out that at that point, the UN didn't actually have a mechanism to do that, to add up those pledges. And so, you know, picture this really earnest little group of not so long ago graduate students. I learned in that moment that pointing out a gap isn't enough to close a gap, which sounds Mm. kind of obvious, but to someone who'd really, you know, been invested in science, it seemed like uh, you know, hello there, world. We have some important information for you. And the world would say, thank you very much for this important information. We will get right to work on that. <laughs> One of the negotiators kind of <laughs> took a minute with me and she basically said, you know, the one thing negotiators pay attention to above all else is how far can they go before their president or their prime minister loses the next election? Right. So you're probably not thinking about politics and those kinds of implications when you're just kind of trying to make things better. What changed for you after that conversation? So it started to become clear to me that the whole framing around tons of carbon was leaving so much else out of the conversation that actually was um, really important incentives for taking exactly the action that we have to take. I started to see the hints of what the World Health Organization finally kind of put a definitive number on in 2018. They said globally, the costs of getting onto a climate safe path will be offset by the health savings of that same path. Wow. is really good news in the sense that it helps us understand that there's short-term payoffs for what we need to do to be safe in the long-term. You know, those short-term co-benefits are what political leaders need to be able to explain to their constituents to help people understand. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. It also just reminds me so much of, of a lot of the policy discussions around you know, the various issues facing particularly working parents right now, being a mom yourself and dealing with the various systemic issues that might have been facing you along this path. You know, did those things kind of inform your thinking on addressing climate in this way? And did did you start to see some like crossover? So personally speaking, you know, partly by choice, but also partly just by good fortune, um, you know, I think I've I've really been able to navigate a path that very few women can to balance being a parent and being a professional. So I, I mentioned um, 
you know, my husband and I, when our kids were babies, we shared one job. That was literally right. one. That's pretty unusual. Was, yeah. yeah. And it, it, <laughs> And when I tell you how it worked, it, it's even maybe more unusual because it was literally one job. It was one desk and one computer and one filing cabinet. And um, we would, we would uh, you know, one of us work in the morning and then we'd pass the babies to the other person who'd work in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when our kids got to be school-aged, it turned out that um, particularly for the older one, public school, which I'd always been a a huge booster of, um, that was my own education experience, wasn't a great fit for her for a whole lot of complicated reasons. So we ended up homeschooling um, first her, and then when her younger sister got old enough, made sense to kind of be doing the same thing across the whole family. And so until they were late middle school, high school age, we we were sharing a job, we were sharing homeschooling and, you know, being parents. So I think a lot of people listening to this will be thinking, oh, okay, so she had this experience that we're all kind of been thrust into you know, years ago. And like, it sounds, it sounds like you found a way to do it with, with some, you know, community support too, which is interesting. In some ways we had, you know, kind of a, a parallel system going to the, the, wider educational system. Tell me a couple things. Like first that there's no one right way to learn, no one right way to teach. Um, right. And and also that it's uh, not always a bad thing to experiment with ways that are a little bit outside of the mainstream. That feels more relevant than ever to me now as we're now, you know, 15 or 20 years further into climate change. We're feeling all these instabilities, economic, political, environmental and system change is being, you know, kind of foist upon so many families, right? And so where mm-hmm. we in many ways we we chose doing things a little differently. We were partly just responding to what seemed best for our kid. But at least for, you know, it seems like the 2020 school year, um, a lot of people are not going to have the choice of just doing it the way that they always did. Um, and so I think there's a couple interesting things to keep in mind about that, which now now I'm kind of putting on my professional hat as someone who studies complex systems and how they change. It's actually a really, I believe, precious and fleeting moment when system change opens up. It doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't happen every generation. And so whether it's like how we're getting food is shifting, right? As supply chains get messed up and restaurants are closed, but the local farmer's market is thriving, that's a systems change. Um, As people are developing pods for education because their school system situation worries them, like that's systems change. But there's a real uh, tendency, and I see it in the education space right now, to have the new systems just emerge out of more or less the same thinking and structures that was in the Mm -hmm. old system. And so one thing that people are reporting, you know, and this goes a bit more to the working from home, right? There's another new system. It could be so beneficial, but we seem to be replicating our society's thought patterns about gender roles and responsibilities, (laughs) right? So it's this moment of newness, but we just, without consciousness about it, are going to, it looks like we are going to replicate um, a pattern that we already know is 
oppressive and that robs the world of the talents of women and doesn't set a good example for children and isn't good for men either as it leaves them, you know, not fully developing themselves. And so it's stressful, these times of systems change, right? And you don't, it, you know, it's happening fast. You have less time than ever. Maybe you're scared, you're stressed, you're worried, you're depressed. Whatever's going on, it's so tempting to just replicate the old familiar pattern. But mm-hmm. if I had any advice, it's like fight that instinct because something new is happening. Um, it's your, such a fleeting chance to set that something up out of maybe the values you really believe in instead of the ones that you're just habituated to. Oh, that's such a good point. So what opportunities are you seeing for change right now? Things that people could start to implement or areas that maybe people should be paying special attention to? I hear about families, you know, matchmaking to create these pods where maybe they'll hire an instructor. Um, It seems kind of neat, right? Like, okay, that seems like a smart way to limit infectiousness. Kids could learn a lot more experientially in small groups. That seems really neat. But then Mm -hmm. you look at the matchmaking and it's like, well, it makes sense geographically. We should all be on the same street, but we live in a country that's so segregated by race that, you know, you do, you, you do what's convenient geographically, you're going to replicate segregated education. And, and, and so yeah. you think you're creating a new system, but you're just replicating a problematic old system. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have a lot of compassion for people trying to balance all these risks. But um, again, without like disrupting the deeper patterns, there's just such a lost opportunity of yeah. um, replicating things that are already destructive. I just feel like everyone's in triage mode right now. How do people try to kind of like get the mental space to be like, I'm going to try to be intentional about this change and and make it an actual change and not just like a shittier version or like the same thing in a different context? You know? Yeah, I, I think it's really hard. Um, yeah. I mean, I think we're learning in real time what we we know needs to happen on a much bigger scale. You know, we're talking about an example when we talk about the education system, but, you know, our our transportation system, our food system, our health system, all of right. them we know aren't serving. All of them we know are kind of patched together and wired over and built on all of these axes of oppression that we know make them, make them not work for any of us. Um, yeah. But then there doesn't appear to be just a smooth and gentle path to the new systems. Mm. I think it's a lot of um, courage and heart are the things that come to mind for me. I think there's some courage and heart both involved in just looking really hard at the fact that at least for this year, when it comes to school, you know, the way it used to be isn't one of the options on your table. And so just like being at peace with that, um, Mm. I think... Danella Meadows foresaw the need for this kind of systems change. She talked about five skills for transformation. One of them was learning, um, which is just try stuff and be really honest about what works and what doesn't. And if it doesn't work, stop doing it and try something else. Networking, um, realizing we're like none of us can do this alone. We're we're all of us sinking as we try to navigate this within the bounds of the nuclear family. So let's reach out and connect and lift each other up. 
She talked about visioning, which is just holding in your mind a picture of what it is you really want to see, like not what you're willing to settle for, but what you really want to see. So you really want to see, Mm. you know, your kids and all their friends thriving through this next year. I'm putting words in your mouth, but it it sounds like it's something like that, that, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then the last one that she talked about maybe is the most important, loving you know, so love thy neighbor as thyself is is uh, a wisdom tradition saying, but it's also a systems thinking instruction, right? In a right. in a complex interdependent system, um, the only way forward is together. And so, where where ethics and systems analysis line up, I normally think that's the pretty good direction to try to go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you have spent a lot of time looking at, you know, the ways kind of various problems intersect and how to address them systematically. I'm curious about where you're seeing the pandemic, climate change, and this whole like parenting school thing intersect. We find the best solutions when we kind of face up to the root causes of things. And Mm. so climate change and the pandemic and the fact that at least in the United States, we're leaving basically families and children on their own through both climate change and through the pandemic. Um, You know, like if you, if you start with those three points and you kind of trace them back, like they must intersect somewhere, where do they intersect? You know, the point I come out to is basically a set of worldviews that don't fit the world. The the worldviews that those three things all kind of connect back to is, I wish I could draw you a picture, but picture um, a pyramid with white men standing at the top and then white women and then people of color and then animals and maybe plants underneath that and maybe like Mm -hmm. microorganisms and the soil. That is a way that some subset of humans on earth have organized themselves for the last 500 years, some, <laughs> the ones at the top by choice and the rest of them, um, you know, not not having a choice. Um, yeah. but, but the way the world is actually organized is much more of a net or a web of interconnection and mutuality, right? So, so get rid of the pyramid and picture a circle with all these connections between all of those parts. And so we've designed all these systems with that pyramid in mind. Um, and we've, for 500 years, been kind of chewing through ecosystems, communities, cultures. We've extinguished instances of all of them. We're brought to the very edge of survival with climate change. We don't need a lot more feedback telling us that it's that's a view of the world that doesn't fit the world. It's not working for us. I have never really thought about where children, you know, fit in that view, but they're not at the top of the pyramid, right, and how we've organized our society. Um, and so as we're talking about, just to sort of touch back on new systems are being forced to be invented, and that's kind of a creative, generative time for better or worse, you know, the, the opportunity I see is to choose that view of a web, you know, Dr. King's inescapable network of mutuality um, and say, Mm -hmm. I don't know how this homeschooling pod is going to work, but it's going to be a web and not a pyramid. (laughs) You know, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to feed everybody in this valley, but we're going to start with the assumption that the soil, the plants, the farmer, the eaters, we're all a web. And like, if we start with that, how would we design this thing? 
that's the glimmer that I see. And I know that it can sound like we're so, we're so far from that, you know, like we're obviously talking in the United States right now, we're in many of our cities for, is it 50 something days at this point, there've been daily protests about Black Lives Matter. And we know that that's being met with brutality in different places. And, you know, people are both struggling against that pyramid model and, and also the full wrath of that pyramid model trying to preserve itself is being exhibited. And that's, that's really scary. But as someone who studies system change, one thing that we know is that it doesn't happen in this kind of like slow, gradual, obvious progression where you're like, yep, here we go. System change in about three years, we'll be there, right? It's chaotic. (laughs) It's confusing. So systems do this, this tricky thing and they resist change and they resist change until, until they shift. And so I'm feeling like every day in these little things, like where are we going to be getting our food from? How are we going to support our neighbors who might be going to, you know, face eviction? All these things that are coming right at us so fast, just deliberately, intentionally saying the world is a web. I'm part of a web. The world is not a hierarchy. I resist hierarchies. Like that can be mm-hmm. a little bit of a, of a guiding star, I think. I don't want to be glib about how hard this time is, but I think it's pretty clear there is no choice that's not change right now. Awesome. Thank you so much, Beth. I really appreciate you taking the time. And this was great. It gave us a lot to think about. And I think we'll give people some um, optimism, actually, which is so nice right now. Yeah, it kind of lifted my mood a little bit. So there's something in, in our chemistry that leans toward optimistic, at least at this moment. That was really nice. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, that's great. So much there. And Dr. Beth is so great because she's pragmatic and focused when I and many of us are feeling just down and helpless. Yeah. So a huge thank you to Dr. Beth Sowen for joining us and climate scientist Kate Marvel, who you heard earlier. Dr. Beth is so calm about everything in this way that I really envy. I'm like, can you be my mom? Um. (laughs) And it's calming, right? It's It's calming for us too. So I hope you all got a lot out of that conversation. Yeah. It's time to say bye for now, but before we do, this episode is produced and edited by our partner in crime, Rachel Swaby, who you heard from up top. Congratulations on the new baby. Yes, congratulations on the new baby. And it's a co-production of my company, Critical Frequency. And Rachel and my company, Reasonable Volume. You can reach us by email at team at reasonablevolume.com or you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Elise W-H-O. 